I once got punched in the face in a courtroom to the point where the judge had to stop in his sentencing remarks to, oh, <laughs> to wait for the detectives to escort the person out, you know. Um, it was, I mean, it wasn't that bad. I wasn't injured or anything, but, you know, like I guess people can just, you know, it can be a really emotional place, a courtroom where people are at their lowest. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm Adam Burnett, your host. With me is our producer, Sammy Ferris. Hey, Sammy. G'day, Adam. And this week, Sammy, we've got an excellent guest, Kate Kiriaku, crime writer with Brisbane's Courier Mail. She was excellent. Uh, fascinating dive into the world of crime and all things that entails. Yeah, a little bit different this week. Uh, normally, we focus on the writing aspect, it being the writer's hour, of course. But this one's all about the podcast Dead Wrong that Kate was involved in a couple of years ago. Really, really interesting stuff. I know you and I are passionate about the podcast format, but this goes in depth about what it took to create that podcast. She was saying that it took 10,000 words of script each episode. You add them all up over a season. That's a whole book. She also explains how she had to get everything checked off by the legal team to make sure she wasn't getting sued or defaming anybody. And she did it all while she was doing her normal job with the career mail, which I found very very impressive and a little bit daunting. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, daunting in many ways. I I thought the same thing, Sammy. For young aspiring journos, it was a clear indication that uh, the podcast world, especially these investigations, they're not to be entered into lightly um, for various reasons, which Kate explores. It was a really interesting dive into that world. So we'll put a link to the Dead Wrong podcast in the episode notes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the writers hour podcast and follow us on twitter at the writers hour we'll also put a link to the podcast without further ado it's over to kate g'day kate thanks for being a guest on the writers hour yeah you're welcome how's things going at the courier mail on, on the crime desk at the moment um we're very much in the grips of the pandemic how's it affected things for you i think when it first happened every single page of the paper was really devoted to coronavirus so for me and, and my team all the crime writers um it was a bit I guess it was a bit frustrating because it was such a major story and it really didn't have much to do with us but things are slowing down on that front I guess and it's actually been an incredibly busy week and a really really sad one um yesterday and this morning I've been working on um I'm not sure if you read it, but the case of the four-year-old girl with Down syndrome who was found dead at her home in Brisbane um, and her father has been charged with murder. So that's that's um, sounding like a really, really awful one. Um, she'd been left dead in, in her bedroom for a little while and they're still trying to work out exactly how long. And she, yeah, I, they're sort of alleging that it's going to be quite a, a horrible case of neglect. I was going to ask you this later, Kate, but I guess you've brought it to the fore now and, and for any sort of young aspiring crime writers, I mean, the crime writing world in some senses seems, you know, cool or sexy or, but there's this other side to it that must be really mentally challenging for, for you guys and, and emotionally challenging and, and draining, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to uh, make a living in writing about sport and the consequences are, are nothing like they are in, in crime. Um, yeah, how, how do you guys manage to deal with it? Is it something you talk about amongst yourselves? I mean, yeah, we always sort of, you know, debrief with, um, with colleagues and, you know, often we, we'll speak to a lot of police as part of my job and often you end up debriefing with them because they, you know, are sort of in the same space. They see and hear the same things. 
I've been doing it for a really long time and so you really have to learn to, I guess, balance your work life with the rest of your life. I mean, I don't want to say you kind of get used to it, which is a really awful thing to say because you still come across stuff where you think, I've never seen anything that bad. And you see bad stuff all the time. You hear bad Mm. stuff all the time. But I I think you just, I feel like we have an important job telling people what people are capable of, where the deficiencies are, where the injustices are. I find it really important. So I think most of the time that's how I deal with that. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, your career extends to, um, you've even written a book on, on the murder of Daniel Morecambe um, up here in Queensland. And, you know, you've, you've dealt with some pretty serious stuff. How did you get into this in the first place? I mean, and, and why, uh, I guess you've partly answered that in, in that it's important work. Um, but yeah, what drove you to, uh, to the crime desk? I kind of fell into it because my first job out of uni was um, at a country paper in Mildura actually. And I really, really loved that job. And I think I was 21 when I started there. And um, I'd just been put on as a young general reporter and the normal crime reporter went on leave and they asked me to take over from him uh, while he was on leave. And I really enjoyed it. It was really interesting work and um, particularly in in a regional town. And when he came back from leave, I just stayed on in that round, which I always, you know, felt guilty about. But later he told me I'd done him a favour. So, <laughs> yeah, and since then I've always, um, I've always just written crime really. I'm, I think I'm one of the biggest one-trick ponies in the <laughs> industry. I don't even think they'd bother trying to make me do something else ever. But um, it's, I guess, yeah, like I said, I, I find the work really important and, um, you know, tragic and sad and interesting but also some of the stories that you tell are the, are the most important sort of human stories that you can tell particularly um one of the things I really like doing is is I guess telling the stories of of the victims to give people a bit more insight into who they are as opposed to just you know their identity becoming a murder victim for example you can sort of tell people you know the important things about their lives and why they're so special to other people and I I, I find that really important. Yeah, nice. You mentioned that you started in Mildura and, you know, we've seen, I guess, over the last 12 months or, or probably a lot longer, actually, um, so many regional papers closing down and that kind of thing. Do you have much interaction with, with young writers these days or young wannabe journos or aspiring journos? And, and if so, um, what are your words of optimism for them? And what, what, what is the path into, you know, a job like yours that, that might really appeal to some young writers these days? Yeah, that's a really that's a really good question, actually. Um, I do a lot of mentoring with our graduate reporters. So the Career Mail has a really good grad program. We put, you know, every year they sort of have to review how many people we can put on. But this year we've got six young graduate oh, reporters. And um, I do a lot of mentoring work with them. And it's a real hard slog coming into a major metro paper. And I think most aspiring journalists want to come straight into a major metro. And it's really fast paced and it's really hard and there's, you know, a lot of pressure and you kind of get thrown into it. So I kind of um, try and help with that as much as I can. And for our grads this year, it's really difficult because they came in for a few months and then coronavirus happened and we're all working from home. Mm. Um, So they're quite isolated. They're not in the office to ask people for advice. So what we've been doing with them every week, we've been doing kind of um, 
I guess like online, you know, like webinars like for them. Yeah, yeah, tutorials. Yeah. So we've got a few senior reporters around the office who log on every week and talk to all the grads. And that's great. We, yeah, we talk about different topics each week. Um, you know, how to come up with a story, how to stack up a story, all that sort of stuff. But if you're an aspiring journalist, you know, there's a lot always being said about you know journalism dying and all that sort of stuff. I couldn't. I just couldn't disagree with that more. At the moment, particularly with all the coronavirus stuff, every single media outlet is reporting that they've had, you know, the biggest engagement they've ever had. People really want to read the news and um, they want to read news that's informed and uh, reliable, um, particularly with all the misinformation out there these days. And I think just really as far as newspapers go, um, look, I'm not an expert. I'm just a journalist. Like I'm a, I'm a foot soldier. So um, there's always going to be newspapers and written news in some format and for that they need journalists and they need good journalists who who are who know what they're doing so if you want to get into journalism I would suggest do what I did which was a brilliant way to learn and is start small country towns are always looking for journalists keen journos that's how I started that's how a lot of really good journos started and I think one of the best things you can do in the industry is kind of get in at the bottom and work your way up and then get that really broad experience. So I worked at a regional paper and then I went to community papers, like in, in Queensland we call them Quest, but I was at uh, leader newspapers in Melbourne. So um, I had a, a really great time working there as well. It was just such a great paper to work for. I was working at the Moreland Leader for a while, which is Brunswick and Coburg, sort of Melbourne's inner north. Um, really interesting place to work. Um, and right when all the gangland killings were on as well. And then from there I went up to sort of uh, major metro papers, so the Sunday Herald Sun, and then moved back to Adelaide, which is my hometown originally, and worked for the advertiser in Sunday Mail and then came up here to Queensland. So I think the way I went into it, by the time I got to a major metro where you have all the pressures and all the pace of a major metro, you really had a good grounding so that you came in kind of knowing what you were doing. What kind of um, character traits or work traits in, in a young journalist impress you? I mean, what, what are you looking for to think, oh, yeah, that kid, they've got what it takes? You, you can learn to be a better writer. So, I mean, while writing skills are good, uh, I, I think that's not the be-all and end-all. I'm passionate about really good writing, but I just think that's something that can improve in time. But the, the thing that you, is the best to come in with is, is your personality and the type of personality you have and and by that I mean you know I'd like to see someone who's really keen who doesn't care what the request is of them you know that they're happy to work really hard and deal with enthusiasm with everything and um, also it helps to I guess be able to talk to people and talk to people from all walks of life that's just such an important thing if you're awkward around people or you're super shy I mean it's not the end of the world but I think you have to understand that when you come in, you have to learn to talk to people. Um, yeah, You're going to have to come out of your shell a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess the, a similar thing could be said in terms of being around the courtrooms and, and that kind of thing, which is, is something I've never done, but it, it certainly strikes me as a potentially intimidating place for a, a young journo. Yeah, it, courts can be really intimidating. Um, most of the people sitting in the courtroom don't want you to be there, particularly <laughs> yeah. if they're there to support someone who's an accused. I once got punched in the face in a courtroom to the point where the judge had to stop in his sentencing remarks to, oh, <laughs> to yeah. wait for the detectives to escort the person out, you know. Um, it was I mean, it wasn't that bad. I wasn't injured or anything, but 
you know, like I guess people can just, you know, it can be a really emotional place, a courtroom where people are at their lowest. Often lawyers don't want to be cooperative. Some are very cooperative, you know. Um, sometimes you might ask a lawyer how to spell their name and they'll tell you to go away, you know. So um, you get a really mixed response. In Queensland, there's some laws around whether or not uh, accredited journalists can use recording devices in court. So as a base, you can, but there's often a lot of confusion around that. Um, and that's not to broadcast it. It's just so you can go back and check the accuracy of, of what people have said in a courtroom, which to me is an incredibly important thing. Any mm. tool that makes uh, journalism more accurate is really, really important. But sometimes you know, prosecutors, even magistrates aren't aware of that practice direction and you'll get hauled over the coals for having a recorder sitting there. So and then you've got to try and explain yourself and refer them to the practice direction. They don't want to know about it. They just want to tell you off. So it can be really, really difficult, but also just getting things right. You know, there's a lot of pressure with that because sometimes the acoustics are really bad and it's really hard to hear or even worse in court reporting is they might be referring to a document or an affidavit or a witness statement and you don't have that statement. So they might refer to it, but you've got no idea what they're talking about and you still have to try and write your story. So it can be really um, challenging court reporting, but I also really enjoy it. It's really, it's really interesting. It's a fascinating part. But yeah, I, as I say, I, I find um, having not had any experience in it, there's a lot of intimidating aspects, not only people in the courtroom, but all the legalities that you, you'd have to be very careful about. And I guess that's something you learn on the run as well in terms of um, making sure you get things right. But um, yeah, having some good uh, sub-editors and editors to help you out with your, your copy when you're just starting out, I imagine. Yeah, that's definitely the case. But mm -hmm. you also have to learn the rules yourself because mm. like one of the most basic rules of court reporting is if, if you're in a trial and the jury is not in the room, then you can't report on anything said in the absence of the jury until, you know, after a verdict's been reached, until after the trial's over effectively. Um, so sometimes I have legal arguments. Sometimes, um, and this happens quite a lot, the prosecution will put its whole case, they'll call all their witnesses and they'll say, okay, this is all of our evidence. And then at the end, when it's the defence's turn, the defence will often file a no case to answer submission. So they'll send the jury out and the defence will say, oh, well, Your Honour, we've heard everything that the prosecution's got to say and it's ridiculous, they've got no case at all, we want the charges dismissed right now, this shouldn't go any further. And they will often try that and, you know, they'll try it on a in any circumstances just because it's a kind of a roll of the dice thing but that's not something the jury should hear because it would influence mm. their decision and most of the time the judge will say no you know we're gonna we're gonna keep going but if I didn't know what I was doing and I reported on all of that and then it got back to the jury or they read it, it popped up on their phone as a news alert or whatever but that's really bad um that can that would throw a trial if, if we did that so um, a sub-editor sitting back in the office might not understand that that yeah. was something that was said in the absence of the Good jury. Point. That's something I have to know about. Yeah. That's high stakes too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And cases have been thrown because of reporters not understanding their jobs. So, yeah. How much time do you, would you estimate, uh, I guess, outside of this coronavirus period, but uh, usually how, how much time are you spending in a courtroom uh, per week, let's say? 
Oh, so I would only go to court on specific cases that I've covered as a crime reporter. So we've got our own courts team. Mm -hmm. So I go down there here, you know, now and then, I guess. Um, I might decide that I want to cover a trial that I've covered as a crime reporter, but I spend a lot more time covering, I guess, breaking news cases or going back and looking at old cold cases and stuff like that than I do in court. But Mm -hmm. I have spent a lot of time in court over the years. Um, I've done a lot of, I guess, long and complex trials. Um, As you mentioned, I did the Daniel Morecambe one, which went for nearly two months, I think. Um, I did the Alison Baden-Clay case. Uh, I did that trial. I did Gable Tosti. So that's a lot of time spent in court day after day after day on the one trial. Now, normally on this podcast, we dive into a story or two, but your Dead Wrong podcast, I wanted to chat to you about it. It's called Dead Wrong. The Apple podcast description is here. It's Dead Wrong is the explosive untold story of the bizarre shooting of Jeffrey Brooks where everything pointed to murder, but family, friends, and crime experts say a botched police investigation let a cold-blooded killer slip away. This is a special investigation by the Courier Mail's Kate Kiriakou and Peter Hall. Uh, I guess more broadly, um, Jeffrey Brooks was a 24-year-old marine biologist. He'd been employed on a crayfish farm outside of Brisbane in the mid-90s to conduct a feasibility study because the farm was losing a lot of money. Jeffrey's presence on the farm was, was an unwelcome one for the farm manager and his wife, who aren't named in the podcast for legal reasons, but it becomes clear they could well be considered suspects in Jeffrey's death, which was um, ultimately ruled an accident despite a lot of evidence pointing to the contrary, which, you know, a lot of evidence which is the basis of the podcast that, that you guys have put together. My first question, Kate, is um, how did you come across this one? Was this one that you sort of had in the back pocket for a long time and it was time to pull it out or did you just stumble across it by accident or hey, how did it happen? No, so this case had actually never really been reported on at all. So I'd never heard of it, but um, I'd been writing about a particular police officer who it turned out was um, involved in the Jeffrey Brooks investigation. And Jeffrey's parents, uh, Wendy and Laurie, saw that detective's name in the paper and contacted us and said, hey, that's that's the detective who ran the investigation into our son's death and we really always believe that it wasn't investigated properly and we, we don't think our son um, shot himself by accident and nothing's ever been done about it and, and we've sort of been complaining to various authorities and getting nowhere for a long time do you do you think you know you and um so the the stories that they'd uh, read were written by myself and and a colleague Peter Hall so they asked both of us if we could look into it so we agreed to meet with them and they live in New South Wales so I think we kind of met them halfway so when was this about 2017-ish yeah so I can't remember exactly when the podcast came out but I know we worked on it for a year before it came out a whole year yeah so we met with them and they brought out boxes and boxes of um evidence that they'd collected over the years uh that they were happy to share with us was that overwhelming to see first I mean were you skeptical at the start or, or did it immediately strike you as yeah this is one we should be we should follow up no I think immediately we thought it was one we should follow up mm-hmm. um when they sort of told us they summarized it all over the phone there were just so many elements to it that you know both myself and my colleague Peter Hall were very I guess very interested in hearing more and and seeing all their documentation yeah I so we met in the 
office of one of News Corp's small regional newspapers because I think there was a halfway point and they gave us their conference room and and I'll never forget Jeffrey's dad Laurie pulling out a shotgun during the <laughs> during that meeting. Um, he's a licensed shooter, so and it was it was not an operational shotgun, but it was very very similar to the one that was found under Jeffrey's body, and he wanted us to see it to understand the size and the length of it and the length of the barrel and everything, but. I just remember looking around because this conference room was in the middle of the building and it was all glassed and, and seeing this guy holding a gun. <laughs> I looked around thinking, oh, my God, is someone going to call the police? But no, no one paid the slightest attention. Um, it's probably more um, concerning. Yeah, yeah. They just, yeah, I guess it was the bush. And yeah. <laughs> and they, they knew that I was a crime writer, so they were probably like, I don't know what they're doing in there, but I assume it's fine. Um, I can assure you that doesn't happen on the sports desk. (laughs) I guess the reason why I wanted to talk about this podcast, particularly with you, it's terrific podcast. I heartily recommend it. And um, I've actually binged it over the last week. It came out in the back end of 2018. But the reason I come across the news more recently has been um, some new laws, which suggest the case could be opened and, and potential for a new inquest in the next 12 months or so. Is that right, Kate? Yes. Yeah, so what happened when, when we were sort of rolling out the podcast and, and we did a lot of newspaper articles at the same time, we sort of had done that really long investigation um, into what happened to Jeffrey. And, and we had a, a lawyer helping us with that as well, who was actually the, um, Peter Boyce, the same lawyer who helped um, Bruce and Denise Morecambe with, with their son's disappearance and murder. He helped us write up a whole, I guess, document or rundown of, of what we found. And we sent that to the Attorney General and we asked her to consider a new inquest and she agreed, which was amazing. So that is sort of in the works now. But what's happened in the meantime is that Queensland has a couple of coroner's acts. So there was one in 1958 that was written and then it was changed in 2003. But if a death happened before 2003... Uh, you have to use the old Coroner's Act, the 1958 Coroner's Act, rather than the 2003 one. So this is a little bit complicated, but but what they've done now is, is I guess, made the rules streamlined across whenever the death occurred. So now what's happened is you can compel, a coroner can compel witnesses to give evidence at an inquest, whereas before if the death occurred before 2003, you couldn't do that, now you can, which could be really helpful in this case of compelling witnesses to answer questions. Before it was the case, if their if their evidence could incriminate them in in a potential crime, then they didn't have to answer the questions. So that's that's not the case anymore. Okay, okay. And at what point in as you and Peter were working out, I guess the nuts and bolts of this story and and the broadness of it. At what point did you decide, okay, why don't we do this as a podcast? I think I wanted to do it immediately. I remember telling Peter Hall straight at the start, this, there's so many elements to this and, and, you know, that the parents are such amazing people to talk to and to listen to and, and you know, their recollections were amazing and, and I thought, you know, let's let people hear their voice and, and they were happy to put us in touch with other people in Jeffrey's life as well, including the owners of the crayfish farm who were happy to tell their story as well. A private investigator who was involved at the time, who's a, an ex-police officer, he was happy, all that sort of stuff. There were so many elements to it. And then I had to explain to Peter Hall, who's been around a lot longer than me and is kind of old school, I had to explain <laughs> what a podcast was. Uh, and it took him a while to get his head around that. I made him listen to a few and then he was on board. 
Yeah, so I think immediately at the start after yeah. talking to them, I thought it would be a really good format to tell Jeffrey's story. Yeah, it certainly struck me as, as the right format, just given, as you say, the scope of it. So many complicated angles and mm. it was just best presented um, through the explanations. But I mean, that's because you guys have tied it all together, <laughs> tied it all together so well. How tough is that? I mean, it's certainly a different art to writing a newspaper story, whether news or feature. It was more than five hours worth of tape across seven episodes. You must have had scripts, interviews, research papers, court documents. Yeah, it was it was a huge amount of work, like a really massive amount of work. Um, we wrote to the coroner as well and asked him for the full file on, from the original inquest, which like amazingly he agreed to give to us. Um, so he's so not was, obligated to, to give that to you? No, and, and I think it really helped that the parents really wanted that information out there. So he he agreed to give us access to that and that was in itself, you know, a couple of thousand pages long or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I ended up having to take over another sort of double desk just with all my paperwork and then... I put everything into giant binders, into categories of witness statements and um, maps. And um, one of the really sad things, but it was really important in the end that Jeffrey's parents had were photographs of his body at the scene, showing the wound in his chest from the from the shotgun, and you know where his body was, where it was next to the car, all that sort of inside of the car, and where the car was positioned. All that sort of stuff was really important in the end, but. They handed me the, at that first meeting, handed me the, the folder of those photographs and said, we don't ever look at these. We don't, but we, we think you might need to have them. So I took them into another room to take photos of them so that they couldn't see. So, you know, that sort of stuff you've got to treat with great sensitivity. But mm, mm. When, it, when it came to consulting with, forensic experts and stuff like that, those photos were really important for them to see, to understand exactly what had happened. But, yeah, just a mammoth amount of material um, that had to be really carefully organised, otherwise you'd just lose stuff or lose track of what you were doing. And then as far as writing scripts go, I mean, I think those scripts are about 10,000 words. It was, you know, it was as long as a book really in the end, what we wrote. um, So each each episode was roughly a 10,000 word script? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yeah. And, and that that was so many hours of work because you had to transcribe all of your mm. interviews and then you know splice them all together and and timestamp everything so that the producer would know where to find each little bit. And then he sometimes had different opinions of of <laughs> the order of things and how things should go. And yeah, so we had one producer, and he's not so much of a producer but more of a hobbyist, I suppose. Sean Callanan's okay. one of our graphic artists at work who did it in his own time. So I'm super grateful to him. He does such a good job. And he's produced my other podcast stuff as well. So, yeah, and like I said, in his own time, in between his actual work, he, he just gets it done for me and he lays music down and all that sort of stuff. So does that help when um, you're trying to sell it to your editor? Uh, hey, I need all this time to do a podcast. Um, I guess it's less time on the books when... Um, I'm imagining you're doing a bit in your own time or quite a bit perhaps and Sean as well as is voluntarily doing it, uh, a bit of a labour of love from you guys. Um, does that help when, when you're selling to the editor? Yeah, I think that if you ever go to a newspaper editor and say, I've got this really interesting story and I want to really dig into it and it'll probably take me a while but at some point 
here, here will be a big package of stuff for you to use. They generally won't say no to that. Oh, they, okay. they are usually as enthusiastic as you. But, yeah, the difficult part about being a daily newspaper reporter is they're like, yeah, yeah, you can go do a podcast investigation. That sounds great. But also um, you need to do your real job as well. So, mm. um, so in between all the Jeffrey Brooks stuff, I was still having to do a lot of daily news stuff um, as it broke, but I've, I've got a really good team. So often they would kind of pick up a lot of stuff that I might normally do. But if it's a really big breaking story, you know, I just have to put that aside and, yep. and jump into it. This is how it works. So you're essentially squeezing this mammoth project into whatever gaps you could find in, in your regular schedule. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what about podcasts themselves, Kate? Were you a? Uh, I think Serial sort of started this crime podcast craze. Was that? Were you on board from that one? And did you sort of see it as a, a nice way of storytelling, or, or an effective way of storytelling from that point forward? Or, or yeah, when when did you get an interest in these? Yeah, I I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts, and Serial was obviously one of them. And I guess the more you listen to, the more you think if I come across the right story, I'd I'd love to tell this format but tell it in this format but I I can tell you that sort of format where you're doing multiple interviews in that sort of storytelling narration type thing where you're splicing in different interviews all throughout the episode it's really really labor intensive it takes a really long time to do yeah so I don't I don't I think you've got to really have the right story and and the right amount of time to put into it for that to to work uh young Writers probably think crime podcasts are, are very cool and, and very they're probably very appealing to, to young journos at the moment. But yeah, do you sort of recommend, I guess you need to get your grounding in the art of storytelling, which is probably news narrative first and, and going from there before you try and tackle, I guess, what you just said was a 70,000 word script? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely recommend that. Yeah, they're not... They're, they're a lot harder than you think. Yeah, ridiculously hard, ridiculous amounts of work in it. And I never like to discourage anyone from taking on a big project though. But I think if you wanted to start podcasting, the best format to get started is what we're doing right now, which is just one sort of long running interview, which, you know, Michelle Laurie does that really, really well on Australian True Crime Podcasts, where she will just interview one person. It's still a really gripping episode and you don't have that labor intensive side of it where you're doing multiple interviews, writing out a script in detail. The other point is too, if you're a young journo just doing a true crime podcast off your own back, you need to be really, really careful with the legal implications. Like every one of my scripts was read by our lawyers and, um, you know, there were a lot of hearty discussions about what should stay in the script and what couldn't. Yeah, so you you wouldn't want to put yourself, I guess, in in a dangerous position legally where you've said the wrong thing or... That's a very like, good point. Same yeah. as in the courtroom. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Do you um, Were you happy with the way Dead Wrong came out in terms of, you know, getting everything in there that you wanted to get and uh, winning battles with, with lawyers about, uh, hang on, we need to be careful here or is it just a case of accepting that there's some things we just simply can't include in this podcast? I mean, yeah, you have to, you have to be accepting, don't you, I think, in the end. There's a lot of negotiation involved with lawyers when it comes to what you can and can't write in a newspaper article or a podcast. And, you know, sometimes I argue really passionately and they never take it personally, which is great. I don't always win. I can tell you that much. I'll just, I'll just say that. I don't always win. <laughs> 
Now, there's um, just some bits and pieces throughout the podcast that I found interesting. You and Peter, I assume, went to the trouble of conducting your own tests, calling in your own experts. Once those things start happening, I mean, it becomes an increasingly bigger commitment for the paper. Was that a difficult thing to handle or did you have a uh, obliging editor? Well, so the, the only thing that costs us money were the ballistics tests and so we went to like a proper facility in Victoria to conduct those um I didn't do it um (laughs) because um we had a really good expert in in sort of ballistics to to conduct those tests using ballistic gel and so just for anyone who hasn't listened to the podcast a quick rundown of what happened was Jeffrey was working at this crayfish farm he had been brought in because they would fill up the big Olympic-sized ponds on the crayfish farm with little baby freshwater crayfish. They'd feed them up and then they drain the ponds to sort of, I guess, harvest them is the right word. Um, and the owners were finding that there were hardly any of the crayfish left or like a lot. They were losing thousands. And so they brought in Jeffrey, who was a scientist, to try and work out what was going wrong, why were they losing so many crayfish. And at first they thought it might have been birds eating them. So one of the things they'd do at the farm is use um this old dilapidated shotgun which 1901 1901 was falling apart was held together with radiator clamps they'd use it to fire into the air to scare off the birds and so when jeffrey started he came from uh, a country town in new south wales his uh, dad was an engineer extremely careful man laurie is very very pedantic sort of man and passed that on to jeffrey so he taught his kids how to shoot and um they had done you know, heaps and heaps of shooting as kids and knew how to handle guns. And Jeffrey, like his dad, was extremely careful with guns. And so he went to the owners straight away and said, basically, not using this this gun, um, it's falling apart, it's really dangerous, it's going to blow up in someone's hands at some point. It, it would go off if you pulled the hammer back and let it go, so you didn't even have to touch the trigger. So Jeffrey just found that gun to be really dangerous. So the owners gave him, I think it was about $400, and said, go go buy a gun that you think is safe. So he did. So he had his own gun on the farm. On the day that he died, he was found in one of the farm cars, which are just like, you know, not a car that you drive on the road. Beaten up old utes. Yeah, beaten up old ute, didn't even have a door, um, that kind of thing. He was found slumped in the car on top of the old 1901 gun that he had always refused to use. He'd been shot right up near his left shoulder um, so the wound tract went from up to down through his chest wall, if that makes sense, as though he was shot from above. So the ballistics tests we conducted relied very heavily on a pathologist report, which we got, which said the wound measured at three centimetres. So with a shotgun, you fire a shotgun, pellets come out and pellets separate the further they move. So if you shoot someone from really close, you know, from like a point blank range, then the wound is very small because the pellets haven't separated. If you shoot someone from four or five metres away, then that spray is really big. Um, So they can actually determine how far a person is from the end of the gun by how big the wound is. So this wound was three centimetres. So what we did is we sourced the same type of gun, the exact same model, um, a 1901 Harrington and Richardson 12 gauge. We use the same ammunition. And we conducted a series of tests from different distances until we got a three-centimetre wound. And what we found was that he couldn't have been holding the gun 
when it went off because his arms just weren't that long. We also even went and did stuff like we found a whole bunch of people the same height as Jeffrey, like the mm. exact same height. Yeah, and we I thought that was interesting. It's a good yeah, way to get around um, your issue that you had there. Yeah, so no one ever looked at how long Jeffrey's arms were or how long his reach would have been. So the police didn't think that he'd pulled the trigger or, or you know, done it deliberately or anything like that. What they thought is he'd driven the car down to one of the dams and the gun, the shotgun would have been in the car between the front two seats and they think he's pulled it out barrel first, like grabbed hold of the end of the barrel and pulled the gun out of the car towards him because he wanted to shoot a bird or a snake maybe or something like that. And they think that the hammer got caught up in the seat and the gun's gone off, which would make sense other than Jeffrey would never touch that gun. He was extremely careful. So it didn't really make sense for him to pull a loaded gun that would go off at anything towards his body. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying it's impossible that he, for whatever reason, did something silly, um, but it doesn't really make sense. And then there was another issue where the wound goes from up to down, so the angle doesn't really work there. So mm. we did mm. our own test too, where we found the same kind of car and we used Jeffrey's uncle, who was the same size as him, and we used a gun, the same measurements, and we tried to pull it out of the car to replicate that angle where the gunshot wound went from up to down. The police suggested that he could have done it bending forward, but we couldn't get that angle right at all. So we filmed that and photographed it, and we sent that and the um, pathology reports, the photos of the crime scene, the ballistic test results, we sent it all to Dr. Judy Melanick, who's a, a, a pathologist from America who did all the autopsies on the Twin Towers, but she's very knowledgeable when it comes to um, trajectories of, of uh, bullet wounds and that sort of stuff. She's pretty amazing. And um, her opinion was that scenario didn't make sense to her either. So did you guys have to, um, did you have to pay for her services? No, she was amazing. She did it in her own time. Yeah, um, wow. She's an amazing lady. And I mean, everything you've just detailed there, uh, it doesn't even scratch the surface in terms of the evidence that was uncovered and I guess the surrounding scenario in that Jeffrey was very clear that he feared for his life. You know, I think the last line anyone heard him speak was curiosity killed the cat before he, he dashed away off the phone, scared that someone was listening to him. And yeah, he had, been sleeping with a shotgun, his own shotgun, and all that sort of thing. I mean, it, it was pretty compelling from the outset. Just on the narration, Kate, I thought it was an effective way that you and Peter did it in alternating. Who, whose idea was that? Was that just a natural conclusion that you guys came to because you put it together as a pair? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we worked. We both worked on it equally hard, you know, so I guess it just made sense that we'd both tell Jeffrey's story equally. So, yeah, I think I don't think I'd so much heard many podcasts done like that with two people narrating. So I wasn't really sure how it would work. And um, I think you guys yeah. were both introduced pretty early. So I mean, it, from a listening perspective, it it was it was very easy to follow. It was good, I thought. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and poor Peter, he's he's just like such a really nice guy, and I got really impatient with him a lot, and he just had to put up with me. <laughs> Pressing stop, making him do it again, <laughs> telling him not to sound so boring. So I was really mean to him a lot. So I hope he forgives me. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess a lot of this, uh, a lot of the points you made, a lot of it comes back to the cooperation of the parents and you guys being understanding of their sensitivities as well. But they seem like a real driving force in this um, and a real 
key to it all being able to happen. I mean, from you had audio from the funeral through to, as you said, you know, photos of the crime scene itself. What sort of relationship do you build there? And I mean, are you still in touch with them now with, with the potential hearing to happen again in, in the next 12 months? Yeah, Peter only spoke to them the other day um, about the, the coroner's, the changes to the coroner's um, legislation. You know, they're, they're amazing people and, and so much of the credit for this goes to them because, as you said, they were the real driving force here and they've done countless ballistics tests themselves to try and show that um, Jeffrey couldn't have shot himself. So we really worked off the back of stuff that they had already done. But the issue with them, and, and this is why, you know, journalism is so important, is that no one would listen to them mm. and mm. they hadn't managed to get a new inquest on their own. Like we had to help help them with that. So they, when, when the Attorney General called for that new inquest, I mean, in the end, that's all we really wanted. We just wanted his death to be examined properly. And whatever the outcome, you know, that, that's irrelevant as long as everyone's satisfied that it was looked at properly and adequately. I mean, that initially they, they decided his death was an accident, I think, you know, within the first hour or two. Mm. Um, there was no gunshot residue test done on his hands or anything like that to prove whether or not he'd been holding the gun when it fired. The police sort of suggested at the time um, that that's because the that inside that car, it, there was so much shooting going on around at the farm. It, you know, they couldn't have ruled it out. He probably would have had gunshot residue on him anyway. But, you know, it's a really standard thing when someone dies from a gunshot wound to GSR test their hands. Like, it's really, really standard. So I think, you know, there are a lot of things that could have been done differently. I think Jeffrey's parents would accept whatever outcome as long as they're satisfied that his death was investigated really thoroughly. I'm really glad that we were able to tell his story for them and they're really grateful too. Having established sort of a long-term grounding, I guess, in, in the crime crime reporting industry, how helpful does that become over the years? I, I mean, is there a little black contact book that, that you've got that you can sort of pull out when, when you need it? And is it a small sort of community that you have this contact who can then help you out, point you in the right direction to this contact? And, you know, is, is that how it works? And is that something, I guess, young reporters should, um, should start building as, as quickly as they possibly can? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think in journalism, you develop a reputation really quickly as someone who's either reliable or not reliable. In crime, it's even more difficult because the information you're accessing is really sensitive, but also, you know, people who give you information they're not supposed to give you can, can you know, face criminal charges for it. But often they do because they feel like there's a, a big injustice, you know, information that really needs to get out there. And they need to have so much trust in you as a reporter. Or sometimes people in authority might tell you something on background just to give you an understanding. Um, you might be going towards a certain angle and they might not want to tell you this on the record, but they, they need you to understand the, the background to the situation so that you know that you're not, maybe you're not on the right track or maybe you've made some assumptions, you know. So... They might tell you something, they don't want you to print it and they're putting a lot of trust in you on that just because, you know, they want, they want what you write to be accurate and true. So you really have to honour that a lot. You know, like a, a colleague of mine this week was asked by another journalist, where would you get your information from? And she basically said, I wouldn't tell you, I wouldn't tell my boss, 
and I wouldn't tell a coercive hearing. So, you know, it's inappropriate for you to ask. So I guess there's nothing more sacred to a journalist than protecting your sources, nothing more sacred. And uh, Kate, uh, you've, uh, as as difficult as you said, um, the Dead Wrong podcast was and as time consuming and I'm sure mentally taxing, you did another, you've done another one since the Spear Creek podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about that? And was it a big decision to, uh, to get involved in, in, in another one? Almost not too, uh, not too far down the track, really. I was sort of hoping that I could do it in a different format, Spear Creek, to make it less time consuming, but still <laughs> tell just as good a story. Mm-hmm. But Sean, who produces my podcast, said no. <laughs> so, I mean, it's a lot of work for him too. So, if if he's willing to do that work, then so am I. But Spear Creek was a really interesting one. It was, I think, the 40th anniversary at the time when I sort of came across the story. It turned out that the um, police, there's a really good cold case investigation unit with Queensland Police. They do a lot of really good work. It turned out that they were also reviewing the case at that point in time. So they spoke to me about their investigation. But effectively, that story was back in 1978, there were three young friends who were travelling around Australia. They're doing a bit of an outback trip by motorbike. The two, there's two guys and a girl. So Timothy Thompson, his girlfriend, Karen Edwards, and their friend, Gordon Twaddle. So the three of them were on two motorbikes. And they were a really distinctive sight because Tim's motorbike was first of all, it was a really nice one, but they also had like a homemade sidecar and on top of the sidecar was Tim's puppy, a Dobin puppy called Trixie. So everyone remembers seeing this group, even though it was amazingly 40 years ago at the time. So they were travelling around Australia. Their plan was to leave. They met in Alice Springs. They are going to travel across to Cairns and then down the east coast of Australia and they'd finish up in Melbourne for Christmas where Karen's family lived. And I think they only made it about three days into their trip and um, they disappeared. But before anyone really realised they were missing, a couple of weeks after they were last seen, they were found in the bush outside of Mount Isa. They'd been sort of um, gunned down in the bush, really, really tragic. And that case remained unsolved for a really long time. But what they did do at the time is they, they ended up tracking down Tim's bike I mean, there's a lot more to this story. I'll just give you the quick summary. But they found mm-hmm. Tim's bike at the home uh, of a young local man. Police believe now that there were quite a few things that lined up to put him in the frame. At the time, he was just charged with theft of the bike and he pleaded guilty. He said that he'd found it um, abandoned in the street and police at the time accepted that and just charged him with theft. Police have now reviewed the case and gone back and arrested that man and charged him with three counts of murder. And he is... Uh, pleading not, you know, as indicated that he'd plead not guilty to to three counts of murder and still maintains that he had no contact with them at all and had only just found their bike on the side of the road. In fact, you know, Gordon's bike was found abandoned on the side of the road. So, you know, that's that's certainly his his defence. Police say that there's a lot of other things that, that line up to put him in the frame, but that's something that, you know, will obviously be tested in court and go before a jury. And will you um, be attending that court case? I hope to, yeah. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Um, is it? Will it be in Brisbane? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Wow. So there, we should stay tuned. There might be more to that podcast as well. Yeah, so that hasn't made committal yet. So first of all, we have a committal hearing, which is kind mm-hmm. of often like a, a mini trial and, and people give, 
you know, witnesses give it evidence um, there as well. I, I hope I'm not wrong in that. I hope there hasn't been the committal. I don't think there has. But certainly the trial, yeah, um, I'd be really interested in reporting on it for sure. Is it your duty in between, I guess, to, to keep up to speed with all the machinations of, you know, the slow turning wheels of justice, I guess, in, in between, you know, arrests and charges and court cases and committal hearings? And do you sort of feel the need to or are you required to report those out uh, as they happen? Yeah, so either myself or our court team, I mean, we've got reporters in court every day. So um, with the Spear Creek one, I've been doing the earlier hearings myself just because, you know, I've got so much background in that case. But for sure, you know, I'll cover a, a crime when it happens and then often it's just handed over to our court reporters and they start covering the hearings unless it's I sort of feel really passionate about following it through and then I can talk to our court reporters about that and then we sort of come to an arrangement usually but with Spear Creek yeah I've been going down to those so he's made a couple of applications for bail and he's now been granted bail so I've covered those yeah I covered it when they first arrested him and he first appeared in court all that sort of thing so yeah it's I think it's really good thing to do as a journalist to follow a case through to the end no matter what Mm. the outcome yeah yeah, I'm sure you probably get a little bit territorial on it as well, which which is understandable. Uh, I guess more broadly, Kate, do you, you know, we've talked about crime reporting for for an hour or so now and it sounds like there's a lot of, um, of rewarding aspects but a lot of really challenging and emotionally difficult aspects to it as well. Do you recommend it to, to young journalists? Oh, for sure, yeah. Um, I think whatever part of journalism you're in, there's always going to be, you know, stress and pressure and um, emotion at some point, you know, and, and crime for me has always been the most rewarding because often you feel like you can really help and sometimes you feel like you can assist in an investigation by putting uh, appeals for information out there or in a missing persons case you can highlight it and then, you know, people who might have seen something or heard something will come forward and, you know, with the Jeffrey Brooks case obviously we were able to help in, in a more broad way with that one. Um, so I would definitely recommend crime to any young journalist but yeah it's a it's a tough gig it really is but for me it's the most rewarding and will there be another podcast from from yourself in in the coming months or years do you think will you uh head down that path again are you a glutton for punishment (laughs) yeah probably at some point but i think in you know it's got to be the right case and you have to have the right amount of cooperation with with people you know because obviously you need people to speak to you so not not in the near future. Obviously, I'm not working on one at the moment, but I'm sure at some point one will come up where I'll think to myself, oh, <laughs> um, maybe this will be a really good podcast or a good <laughs> format to tell this story. So, yeah. Uh, I'll throw a hypothetical at you to finish off. Um, you can choose any subject you want and have access to anyone and everyone involved. Uh, what would you like to do a podcast on? Is there anything that jumps out at you? I mean, I, I'm probably going to be a little bit boring here and just stick to my own round, I suppose. But like, like I said before, I'm a bit of a one trick pony, but (laughs) I think um, if I had any level of access, it'd be really interesting to sit in on a, a homicide investigation as it unfolds. I'm sure any crime reporter would love to do that where you're in, you know, what they used to call a a major incident room where all the detectives are sort of um, going through the ins and outs of their investigation. and, And I guess, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, that would be really, really fascinating, but also fairly impossible. So. A bit of red tape there to be embedded with the, uh, the homicide team. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be fascinating. <laughs> It'd be incredible. Uh, mm. Well, Kate, thank you so much for sharing uh, all your experiences with us. Um, it's been terrific having you on, and um, yeah, we've we've enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, no worries at all. See ya.